Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We will begin with reports in the British press that Russian nuclear weapons are being moved to the front in the war on Ukraine, escalating the already tense situation following repeated threats by Putin that he might use nuclear weapons and that he is not bluffing. Joining us is Anders Aslan, a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Centre for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. A member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences, he worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. His books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy, and we will assess whether Putin is desperate and trapped in a losing war of his making or is upping the ante rhetorically to force Biden to the negotiating table. Then we'll investigate further how close we are to having the nuclear taboo which has existed since the US bombing of Nagasaki, broken by Putin whose military and domestic situations worsen by the day. Joining us is Hans Christensen, director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists, where he provides the public with analysis and background information about the status of nuclear forces and the role of nuclear weapons. He previously was a consultant to the nuclear program at the Natural Resources Defense Council and also was a senior researcher with the Nuclear Information Unit of Greenpeace International. Then finally, with mounting criticism of the Supreme Court and questions and concerns about its legitimacy coming from the justices themselves, we'll look into what practical steps could be taken to move this far-right court back to where it reflected the centre of American social thought and political outlook. Joining us is Lawrence Douglas, the James Grossfeld Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College, and a contributing opinion writer for The Guardian. His latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now from Oslo, Norway, is Anders Asland, a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. A member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences, he worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. And his books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy, to kleptocracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anders Aslan. Thank you very much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Anders. And uh, there are reports coming out of the UK that appear to be leaks from British intelligence that the Russians, these special trains that the Russians have to move nuclear weapons, are moving tactical nuclear weapons closer to Ukraine. Apparently, this is the signal that 
the U.S. intelligence is looking for to indicate that Putin may be ready to escalate to use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. He's clearly suffering military setbacks, having lost Liman, and now parts of the Ukrainian military are moving in on Kherson, and they could trap 25,000 Russian soldiers there. Meanwhile, the Russian military itself appears to be, and it's obviously been hollowed out by corruption, but it appears to be at war with itself, with factions led by Prigozhin, Putin's pal, the cook, who does the procurement, along with Hadirov, the warlord. They're at war openly on Russian media with the regular military itself. All kinds of recriminations are flying in the open now on state TV, so this broader picture, and you include the fact that Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines were blown up in an incredibly reckless, desperate act, clearly on the part of Putin, you get the impression here, Anders, that the wheels are coming off Putin's government, and he may well be desperate. So let's start with the nukes. How serious do you think this is? Yeah, I think that we should take the whole thing. So uh, Putin now seems to be throwing everything in it. You mentioned some of the parts, the referendum, the annexation of four uh, provinces of Ukraine, where they don't even know how much of the land they have annexed and they can't uh, uh, define it. Uh, And... um, it really looks now as if uh, Putin is losing it and that is uh, in a total desperation. And I think one should see it like this, that Putin wants to have negotiations with the West. He wants to thr- frighten the West and say, you know, I'm really mad, so therefore you have to negotiate with me. Uh, he called for negotiations, but what does he mean with negotiations? That some Western countries should put down the foot on the poor Ukrainians and say, now you're not allowed to uh, pursue any more war. Now I want uh, uh, you uh, to, to con- control these Ukrainians who beat me on the battlefield. I think that's how one should uh, see it. Will Putin use uh, nukes? I doubt it. Uh, for the same reason that uh, Hitler never used uh, chemical weapons during World War II, but pre- preferred to commit suicide because he didn't see that uh, 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 chemical weapons would help him. This, in the same way, there are two scenarios that are being discussed. Uh, one is uh, that there would be uh, s- small tactical nukes used in uh, Ukraine. What the Americans have s- said rather clearly uh, you know, Jake Sullivan uh, said it, uh, was it on Sunday, that mm-hmm. if that happens, we will uh, bomb uh, the hell out of them. Uh, and uh, c- clearly this means take out the Russian Air Force, which the Americans now can do, and the, the Black Sea Fleet. So that would not be an attractive uh, option. And uh, the other option is the Third World War, and uh, that is uh, good for nobody. So I, I I do think that Putin is rational enough uh, to understand that he can't really do that, and that this is more in order to frighten Germans and uh, uh, the French, so that they say, you Ukrainians can't continue like this, you have to stop. So if this is just leverage in order to force particularly the White House, into negotiating with Putin. Putin doesn't want to negotiate with Zelensky because he doesn't take him seriously 
and the the negotiations with via the Turks seemed to be absolutely fruitless. The fact that Putin entertained or the Russians entertained this ridiculous offer from Elon Musk would indicate to me that they're pretty desperate to talk. Why does Biden not want to talk with him? Because he doesn't want to make this one-sided deal that Putin is offering? Is that what's going on? Yeah, I think that uh, uh, President Biden is completely clear. I'm not going to negotiate for the, the, the Ukrainians. But what I think that he should do, that is to make uh, a clear, strong statement, as President Kennedy did in 1962, you don't fool around with uh, uh, nuclear arms. And uh, tell them if you, uh, that it should come from the president himself. If you uh, do something small, uh, our Air Force will take out uh, whatever we think is worth taking out. If uh, you do something big, uh, none of you will survive because it will be a third world war. We will respond uh, fully. And I think that he actually needs to do that. So you refer to, of course, President Kennedy during the Cuba crisis, which did go public. So you're arguing that it's time for Biden to go public. Yeah, and I, th I think that... Uh, uh, Putin doesn't take it uh, seriously until it's uh, uh, stated very publicly and firmly. But in the meantime, is it possible that behind the scenes, Biden is talking to Xi Jinping and, and Modi in India, uh, Putin's friends, trying to get them to reason with him? Is that? Do you think that's going on? It's quite possible. I don't have any understanding of it. But I think that it would be quite useless. Useless. Yeah, so in other okay. words, Putin yeah. doesn't listen to anybody at this point. Yeah, he would only listen to one person, President Biden. And therefore, Biden needs to speak up and he needs to do so publicly. And you don't feel that this is a desperate man who's trapped. I mean, the, the blowing up Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 seem like the act of a desperate man. I mean, it's just... He's more or less telling the Germans and the Europeans, OK, if you don't want my gas, you're never going to get it. I mean, that's pretty much the Samson complex, isn't it? Tearing the temple down? Not quite, because if you look up on how it was done, it was quite cleverly done. It was uh, not on Danish or Swedish territorial waters, but just outside. But it was within the economic zone, which is formerly international water. And uh, what did they blow up? Russian property. The, the pipelines are owned by uh, uh, Russian uh, uh, Gazprom. Uh, so it seems to me that this was more a sign of uh, desperation, saying that I want to negotiate. Don't you understand that? Otherwise, I can do something really mad. But uh, this was close to an act of war, but it was not. And it was very clearly not an act of war. And, of course, it's a way to get out of the contracts, too, isn't it? Indeed. The, the, economically, it's an advantage that the contracts are bro uh, broken for, with force majeure, so he would not have to deliver the, the gas or pay um, penalties for not doing so. And also, uh, he could claim insurance because somebody unknown who has blown up uh, the, uh, the pipeline so that they can't uh, be, be used anymore. So there could be uh, claims of billions of dollars uh, uh, coming out of this. Uh, of course, it's not very credible, but you never know.
Right. So what are you to make of reports that the Ukrainian military providing their soldiers with uh, iodine pills along with the EMS workers, firemen, etc.? Is that something that should alarm us? Uh, I think that this is what they absolutely have to do if they know that uh, uh, nukes are being delivered, regardless of uh, whether they think that it's uh, likely that the nukes will be, be used or not. So I think that this is an elementary duty of the Ukrainian military. So I'm happy uh, to see that they do so. But the bottom line, though, is that you are not of the school of thought that thinks that the wheels are coming off the entire Putin regime and that he's a desperate trapped man. You think he's actually using the threat of using tactical nuclear weapons as a way to force Biden into a negotiation. Uh, So the only real option here is for Biden to speak directly to Putin or go public. He should do so publicly. I think it's very wise not to go behind anybody's uh, back. And uh, I think that uh, Biden has done so very sensibly. But this is the big push. You don't use nuke. That's essentially what uh, he should uh, uh, tell Putin. And uh, uh, we have no reason to negotiate with you. You should withdraw from, uh, from Ukraine. That should be the message. Two sentences. But one of the problems that have existed all along, and this is a a new anomaly in geopolitics, to have a mafia state. In other words, to have the combination of national security and organized crime, nuclear weapons and the mafia. So there has been some reassuring reports that the Russian command and control over nuclear weapons is fairly robust. But... If you're working for a military that's been hollowed out by corruption, and we, we know that from the poor performance in Ukraine, do we know what kind of control there is? In other words, if Putin were to use a tactical nuclear weapons, and if, as Jake Sullivan threatened last Sunday, that, or Sunday week, I think it was, that the U.S. would perhaps sink the Black Sea Fleet and take out the Russian Air Force, It's hard to believe that the Russian military would sit on their hands. So what kind of reassurances do we have of the control over nuclear weapons in what's essentially a mafia state? Yeah, you're of course right. We don't have such uh, controls. What uh, Pentagon has said previously, that is that we know that uh, the, the nuclear controls go through five different people and Putin cannot launch them uh, on his own. But given that Putin has now sacked uh, generals right and left, we don't know if uh, the old nuclear controls are still in force, or for that matter, if anybody will bother about them. So then the idea of retaliating by taking out the Black Sea Fleet and, and the Russian Air Force, which NATO could certainly do. The one thing that we've learned from this terrible war in Ukraine is that the Russian military is a paper tiger. But it's hard to believe that Russia would stand by and do nothing as its territory was bombed. I don't think that Putin would survive such a, such a folly, How, whatever would happen. 
this mobilization seems pretty much uh, to be uh, just about uh, uh, the last uh, blow to him. So uh, I would uh, bet that Putin will be ousted in one way or the other, and how we cannot say. Right. Well, he was clearly reluctant to do the mobilization, and for apparently good reasons, because it really has backfired. Yeah, because uh, that has meant that the war has come home uh, to the to the Russian uh, middle class in the big cities. Uh, and these were the people Putin did not want uh, to disturb, and very rightly so. Uh, a few days ago, I flew from Helsinki to Stockholm at midnight, and on my plane, it was absolutely full with tall, young, quiet Russian men. And uh, it was uh, the whole plane was full at midnight. I just flew now from uh, Stockholm to Oslo, and there were very few on the plane, which you expect at these uh, uh, times. So th this uh, suggested that these were Russian young men who wanted to get further away from Finland because they did not feel safe in Finland, too close to Russia. And I thought the Finnish border was also closed. There was a big backup of... Uh, of Russian cars trying to cross the border. did I would have thought that the Finns would have at least given them some kind of amnesty, wouldn't they? Well, this was one week ago. Uh, probably the Finns would have given them uh, a political asylum if they had applied for it. But mm. I heard there were only 800 Russians now who applied for political asylum. People want to keep their options open if sure. they have applied but were the cars asylum, allowed to come into Finland? They stopped them a few days ago. Right. So what what happens to these Russians? Are they trapped? They're fleeing wherever they can. Right. Well, they're losing their best and brightest, aren't they? They have. That's been going on for some time. Absolutely. So there are hundreds of thousands of uh, young Russian. Uh, men well educated in the uh, basically in the 20s uh, that have fled Russia and they just could uh, uh, now and Finland was one of the uh, places so at the uh, airport in, in Helsinki uh, last uh, Monday I could almost only hear Russian. Wow so if you say though that Putin will go. It's this the beginning of the end for him. He's always been paranoid about ending up like Gaddafi. So that, that again would indicate to me that he could be desperate. So, I mean, who's going to give him a lifeline? We talked about the need for Biden to go public like Kennedy did in the Cuba Missile Crisis. But in terms of, it was pretty clear that Biden doesn't want to deal with this guy and would like him to go away. Is there any way that Putin would go away quietly? I think that other people will take, uh, take care of it rather. But uh, you remember Idi Amin went to Saudi Arabia and lived there uh, for a couple of decades before he uh, uh, died after he was uh, ousted. Uh, there are places you can go to. Saudi Arabia is a good place to go to. Yeah, well, they're, they're buddies, MBS and Putin. Indeed. So, so this is a, a very dangerous moment we're living through, right? It, it's not necessarily happening in public, but 
Uh, I don't think we're exaggerating here, do you, Anders? I think that it's a critical moment now because, uh, but I would put it more positively that uh, it really looks as if the Russian troops uh, uh, in southern Russia are collapsing now and that the Russian troops are giving up uh, uh, very fast so that they don't want to fight at all. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. My great pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Anders Aslan, who's a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences. He worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. And his books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy, and he joined us from Oslo, Norway. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back investigating further how close we are to having the nuclear taboo, which has existed since the U.S. bombing of Nagasaki, broken by Putin, whose military and domestic situations worsened by the day. He's got the whole world in Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Hans Christensen, the director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists, where he provides the public with analysis and background information about the status of nuclear forces and the role of nuclear weapons. He previously was a consultant to the nuclear program at the Natural Resources Defense Council in Washington, D.C., and was also a senior researcher with the Nuclear Information Unit of Greenpeace International in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Background Briefing, Hans Christensen. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Hans, and you were recently interviewed by Business Insider in an article titled, Nuclear Weapons Expert Says We Should Be Extraordinarily Concerned About Putin Nuking Ukraine. At this point, we're hearing some reports from uh, the UK, the, the Telegraph, which is often a conduit for, for leaks from MI6, that the Russians' dedicated trains that carry nuclear weapons have, are moving towards Ukraine. What do you make of those reports? Yeah, thanks. Uh, well, first about the interview there in the Business Insider, um, I, I don't think we should be concerned that he actually will do it. Um, my concern is that he's threatening to do it. I think that is problematic. Um, I think the likelihood that he'll, he'll do it is much smaller. Um, the interview that we've seen gone around in some uh, outlets in Europe regarding a transport uh, in central Russia um, so far has not been substantiated and so far appears to be uh, misinformation. Um, we don't know precisely, of course, how the intelligence community is looking at this. I think it's fair to say that if there's something to it, we're likely to see some kind of a statement over the next uh, few days. But so far, I haven't heard any indication that uh, uh, that indicates that the report is accurate. So it's my understanding that 
the tactical nuclear warheads are stored in bunkers and that the yes. launchers, it, they're not that significant because they already have launchers deployed, not necessarily in Ukraine, but certainly close to Ukraine with conventional warheads. So all they have to do is put the nuclear warhead on the existing missile, right? Yes. Well, they will have to dig it out of the uh, central storage facilities first and go through the procedures of transporting it out to the unit and, and installing it on it. So there is some lag time before things could be moved out and it gets to the to the launcher itself. But even if one imagined that uh, Putin would make such a decision, um, one could easily imagine that he would perhaps do a fake deployment where there are no weapons being deployed or being transported, but he would set up a show, so to speak, to create the condition or the impression that something was underway to increase his coercion to scare the Ukrainians uh, or others. Um, but even if he does make the decision, um, it would take uh, several days, presumably, for the weapon to come out and be installed uh, at the launcher itself. So this is to say that U.S. intelligence is looking at these facilities, right, at the bunkers, at the special units that transport the warheads and deploy them on missiles. Yes, I would suspect they have a pretty constant surveillance of those facilities, yeah. And that's why uh, if Putin were to fake one, he would know that he's being watched, right? Presumably. Um, but then again, he may not have to do this you know, in a way that impresses the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, I think his main interest is to play whatever he's doing up in public so he can create concern in the public debate about this um, rather than actually going through with it. But isn't he angling to get President Biden's attention? He's always made it clear that he doesn't really want to negotiate with the Ukrainians because his propaganda tells the Russian people that they're puppets and that they're really fighting the Americans and NATO in Ukraine. So is that what's going on here? Um, the first, when he started to go into Ukraine uh, at the beginning of the year, one of the first things he did was to issue a sort of thinly veiled nuclear threat. And that was quite clearly a message to the Americans to stay out of this. Um, but it was sort of a, a message in, in, in the communication between Moscow and Washington, if you, if you could say it that way. Um, recently, about 10 days ago, he uh, held a speech in which he was much more explicit about a potential role of his nuclear weapons uh, in Ukraine uh, on, on this issue of uh, attacks against what he considers Russia, Russian territory. Um, but we've had several attacks against Russian territory right now. They're Ukrainian. Well, let me replace, re rephrase that. We have several Russian attack, uh, Ukrainian attack, both into Russia in the past. Uh, but we also currently have Ukrainian uh, uh, forces rolling through what he considers Russia's territory now in, in Ukraine, these uh, four districts. So, um, you know, that red line has already been crossed many times and so that sort of makes me suspicious that he sort of he's playing this up uh, as a as another public stunt well but the news is getting worse and worse for him he not only has he lost Lehman now he's losing big chunks of his defenses around her son and if he loses his son 
how can he possibly pretend? I mean, already there are cracks in the propaganda wall. You've got essentially Russian military figures arguing with the mercenary figures from Prigozhin's Wagner group and and Hadirov's murderous mercenaries as well. It's almost like the, the Russian military is at war with itself. The mercenaries on the one hand and the um, regular military on the other. They're all, there's a blame game going on, and it's being aired on, believe it or not, on state TV. Yeah, that's one of the things that the Russian regime is very good at, blame games. Um, you know, from day one, this has a bit been about uh, things they claim that are just not true, and, and Putin has been, um, you know, fantastic in making bad decisions from early on in this matter. Um, so it's it's, we're going to see more of the same, presumably. But even though he's in trouble, both both in Ukraine, internationally, and at home, um, using the nuclear weapons will not nuclear weapon will not help him out of that dilemma. And so, you know, there are no good options here. It's not going to make him win the war or anything like that. It's going to, you know, isolate him further. And uh, so, so you know, he doesn't have any good options. This is his dilemma. So. I guess all he can do is sort of come to grip with the fact that he has uh, lost this uh, war in Ukraine, essentially. Well, it is pretty clear that the Ukrainians are getting better and getting better equipped and being much more effective on the battlefield. And conversely, the Russians are, are getting worse off and decimated and they're having a hard time. And recruiting and Putin did not want clearly did not want to mobilize the reserves and for good reason because it's really backfired uh, and young Russians are fleeing the country those that can afford to get out and they tend to be the educated and professional ones so there's a massive brain drain going on so that's the asymmetry because you've only got a couple more months left right before the winter sets in and that will freeze the combat altogether. So it looks as if uh, Ukraine is on a roll and things are going to get much worse for Russia on the battlefield. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He's up in a corner. There's no doubt about it. And the only thing that he really wants now, of course, is that the the West will do something that can make him turn around at home and justify some extreme step. I mean, he needs something that can justify more. So I think it's smart on the part of the West that it has not played into his nuclear saber rattling and tried to threaten, uh, you know, nuclear use, um, even if if he um, decided to do it. So so yes, he's in trouble. Um, internationally and at home, and uh, we'll see where he goes from here. But I, I think he's sort of hanging in a very, very fine thread by now. But Hans, are you suggesting that he has to do something to signal to his people? What can he do? If you say that the, using a nuclear weapon is not going to work, it's going to absolutely freak out the rest of the world. So, what short of that can he do? to maintain the illusions that his whole war is based upon, that the public have been fed, but now there are cracks in it because the middle class are now learning about what's really happening and their sons are are fleeing to avoid the draft. Yeah, but that's the thing. I don't think he has any cards to play. He can't do anything to turn the tide. Um, 
what we're seeing now is the beginning of the final phase. And we don't know how quick it'll be or exactly what it'll entail, but there's no indication he's going to win this war. Um, so, so I don't know what he's going to do, but, uh, uh, you know, I think we're in the final phase or toward the final phase. Well, you're saying, though, that it, the U.S., what they're doing now by sort of not saying much is the right strategy. You don't agree with the earlier guest on today's program suggested that it's time for Biden himself to go public and make a public address as uh, Jack Kennedy did during the Cuban Missile Crisis. You would not agree with that, I take it? Uh, no, in terms of, in terms of, I mean, the, the U.S., uh, U.S. officials, including Biden, have been out in public many times, giving, given very uh, sort of uh, stark warnings um, about what could happen and have again and again emphasized their supply of, of equipment and more to come uh, to you, to the Ukrainians to help them uh, beat the Russian forces. Um, so they're out all the time to push this agenda. What's not happening yet is him uh, rattling the nuclear sword in terms of um, preparation to use nuclear weapons on the ground. So, you know, we're not at that stage yet so I don't think it would make any sense at all for U.S. government officials to go out and say anything explicit about the potential role of nuclear weapons in this conflict. Well, already Jake Sullivan has said that if Putin were to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, the U.S. would strike back heavily with conventional weapons. And that probably means severe attacks. I don't know whether they would... No, attack. I don't. I don't think he has said that. He hasn't said that the U.S. would strike back with conventional weapons. I think he has said that the consequences would be uh, significant, and they're they're starting all options. You know, so that's what right. he's communicating. But it's not an explicit commitment that if you do this, we're going to come in and bomb you. Well, but could they bomb Russia? Take out the Black Sea Fleet? Take out the Air Force? Or would they? If the U.S. had to retaliate or felt, you know, in response to the use of a nuclear weapon in Ukraine, would they have to limit their retaliation to Ukrainian territory, which I assume would also include the areas that Russia just annexed? Yeah, you know, I mean, this is not a computer game. It's not about shooting ships down or, you know, taking out this and that. It's about what to do if the other side does something that does not escalate the war uh, out of control. And so this, the idea that we've heard from a couple of people that once you go in and, and, and knock out Russian forces or sink the Black Sea fleet, that I think would be sort of a recipe for how to escalate it. If you want to make Putin use tactical nuclear weapons, that's what you have to do, sink the Black Sea, uh, Black sea fleet. So what then would you expect Biden to do if a nuclear weapon was used in Ukraine? Because I, I, my assumption I is he should, it wouldn't hurt if he went public to the American people, say we are at a very dangerous point and President Putin is acting recklessly. You know, we, we're trying to get the Chinese and the Indians to help us out and weigh in on him and make him be rational. But this is a very dangerous moment. I don't know <clears throat> whether that would be useful or not, but... It seems to me... I don't think... Go ahead. Yeah. No, I just don't think 
it's not in the style of you as officials to go out and give explicit examples of what are they going to do. You know, so, you know, they're going to say, if you do X, then we'll do Y. So, you know, this is, this is what they want to avoid to do because, you know, you get into a corner, uh, get boxed in or, you know, Putin would be able to, you know, make counter steps and play this up in the, in the, in the public. So, we don't know what they communicate in private, but in public, I don't think they're going to say that, something like that. That said, if things were starting to happen were involving nuclear weapons, um, I would imagine the, the heat would be turned up on a number of fronts, including, of course, the, communi- the kind of communication that happens directly to the Russians, but also to um, you know, score up support internationally for a lot, for much greater um, sanctions, political, economic uh, isolation of Russia, uh, potentially, or we don't know that, but potentially something involving cyber attacks. Um, The difficult parts, more difficult parts, I think, is really about the direct military engagement. That's a big step to take, because even if Putin uses nuclear weapons in Ukraine, which I don't think he will do, but if he were to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, um, that would not be an attack against NATO. It would not be an attack against the United States. So could NATO, could the United States nonetheless go in and attack Russia? If you attack their forces, you presumably technically attack Russia. So that could open up Pandora's box for further escalation. So I'm not sure that that is a realistic option. But I can't, of course, rule it out. But it just sounds difficult uh, to imagine that scenario, at least for me. Yeah, but by default, what you're saying, uh, Hans, is that Putin could go ahead and use nuclear weapons. No, what I said didn't say we shouldn't do anything. But I'm saying we're somewhat tied in what we can do, because it's not just about boxing back like you're some you know, fighter in a ring. It's about thinking about what you do, what will that create, what's going to happen later, uh, and so forth. So it's very important to think carefully about that. Sure. But I, I'm just trying to figure out what it is that you could do if nuclear weapons were used. And your point is well taken. He's not using them against America or against a NATO country, but he is using them against a country that the U.S. and NATO are trying to defend. They're trying to help it defend itself, yes. Right, right. But what can you do, short of... Well, that's what I started saying, that you could try to shore up support for you know further sanctions on Russia, political, uh-huh. diplomatic isolation, um, you know, possibly consider sort of, you know, sabotage operations with cyber, these types of things. Um those are options you can consider that are short of direct kinetic military operations against right. Russian forces and, and these things. So, so, but if you're willing to gamble that if you attack their forces in Ukraine, they would not escalate, then if you conclude that you can do that, then of course that's an option. But I have questions about it. I just right. find it... Gambling with the end of the world is not something that anybody could entertain lightly. Just in closing, though, Putin is getting pressure from the hawks, from the the military bloggers, from the nationalists, 
and from these yep. propagandists on state TV who are basically, you know, that dreadful woman that runs RT is talking about how Russian men have balls, you know. I mean, <laughs> that's a level of mm-hmm. the kind of, of discourse going on. So this is right. what concerns me. It's not as if he's getting pressure from peaceniks. He's getting pressure from hawks. <laughs> yes. I mean, the man is an expert in creating enemies. And so whether that is outside the country or inside the country. And so I, I don't know what his strategy is or end game, but uh, none of what he does seems to be creating possibilities. It all seems to make things, everything more difficult. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, Hans. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me. And again, I'll be speaking with Hans Christensen, who's the director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists, where he provides the public with analysis and background information on the status of nuclear forces and the role of nuclear weapons. He previously was a consultant to the nuclear program at the Natural Resources Defense Council and was also a senior researcher with the Nuclear Information Unit of Greenpeace International. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into what practical steps could be taken to move the far-right Supreme Court back to where it reflected the centre of American social thought and political outlook. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lawrence Douglas, the James Grossfeld Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College, and a continuing opinion writer for The Guardian. And his latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lawrence Douglas. Always a pleasure to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Lawrence. And uh, I spoke yesterday with uh, law professor Eric Siegel, who believes that the Supreme Court itself is the problem, that these are unelected, unaccountable jurists who have a lifetime tenure. No other country has such a system. But short of complaining about that, I'm not sure what the practical possibilities are, because if you wanted to alter the Supreme Court in any way, in the way that Eric Siegel was talking about, you would have to have a constitutional amendment, which, of course, is a very high bar and something of a chimera. So are there any practical steps that can be taken? Because there was a piece in the Sunday New York Times arguing that Biden should start speaking out about the court. And we've the polls have been done that show that the public is largely unhappy with the court and think it's too ideological and too far to the right or out of the mainstream of the American public. But then when they're polled on whether the court should be stacked, they're against that. So is there any practical answers to the current problem we have with the concerns about the legitimacy of this particular Supreme Court? Well, I guess we could let's let's agree that there should be concerns about the legitimacy. In fact, uh, there have been polls that have showed that the um, the Supreme Court is basically at the low point in uh, the public's perception of its legitimacy. I think it's even at a lower point than it was 
after its decision, its highly partisan decision in Bush v. Gore in the wake of the 2000 election. Um, let's go to the point about a constitutional amendment. I mean, you're absolutely right that one of the biggest, I suppose, defects with our great constitution is the process for amending it. It's simply too hard to amend the U.S. Constitution. Um, I'm not sure if term limits are necessarily something that would um, that couldn't be done, however. Even with the incredible difficulty of amending the Constitution, it is possible that you know something like term limits of the Supreme Court justices might be able to get bipartisan support. That I think would be a, a helpful step. It seems like a lot of people uh, support the idea of having um, term limits and having some kind of um, you know rotating process of nominating justice to the court to eliminate the incredible partisanship that now is associated with the uh, nominating process um, so that we avoid something like, you know, um, uh, in his eight years as president, Obama got to choose uh, two members of the Supreme Court. In his four years as president, Trump got to choose three members, largely through the shenanigans of uh, Republicans. So I wouldn't necessarily put term limits uh, off the table using the Constitution as a device for uh, achieving that. Um, you could also, you know, as you suggested, you could you could tamper with the size of the court itself. So the size of the court is not something that has uh, that is established by the Constitution. It's something that's actually established by uh, Congress through uh, ordinary legislation. And the size of the court actually has fluctuated over time in American history. It's gone from as low as five members. Uh, to as high as 10, uh, since basically stabilizing at the number that we're familiar with, nine. You know, the problem with uh, increasing the number of members of the court for the purposes of basically generating political outcomes is instead of bolstering legitimacy, arguably you simply make everything more partisan and more political. So it, it's something of a, a, of a dangerous thing to do. Uh, particularly when we bear in mind that, remember, the nomination process um, to get onto the Supreme Court, you have to be nominated by the president and then confirmed by the Senate. And the Senate is much more conservative institution than the United States as a whole, given the fact that every state gets two members of two senators. And, uh, you know, that means that even though right now the Senate has a, basically a 50-50 divide, Democrats represent 40 million more Americans than do the Republicans in the Senate. So I, I worry about stacking the uh, court because what goes around comes around and the Republicans will typically have an advantage when it comes to the, the Senate. So um, there are other things we could talk about if you're interested. Well, I'd like to just follow up though on what happened in 1935 when FDR frustrated with the, this reactionary Supreme Court blocked his New Deal initiatives, he went public and educated the American people. And then, of course, when he decided to try and threaten to stack the court, that sort of backfired because, again, the public weren't happy about that, even though they were totally on board with his criticism of the Supreme Court. So the point being that they seemed to be susceptible, at least, to uh, public scorn or public pressure or questions about their le legitimacy. I'm not sure that there's any way to name and shame Clarence Thomas or Sam Alito, but is that a tool that Biden could use and should he go public? 
Yeah, you know, honestly, I think the the experience from uh, from FDR's attempt to pack the the court, it's not entirely clear uh, whether the threat of packing the court was sufficient to prod the court to adopt a jurisprudence that was less reactionary. Um, as you pointed out, I mean, the, the suggestion was to bump the number from nine to 15. Of course, uh, FDR didn't want to publicly say that uh, he was doing this simply to generate uh, politically uh, supportive results. His argument, I think, at the time was that six of the nine members were in their 70s and these poor septuagenarians needed some assistance with their burdensome, burdensome workloads. And so let's nominate a new, ju a new justice for everyone over 70. Uh, but as you pointed out, even the Democratic Congress, you know, FDR's own Congress rebelled against it because they didn't like this idea of kind of so politicizing the judiciary. Now, whether it really had an effect on the justices themselves, a lot of historians now say it didn't. But I do think you're, the point that you're making is an important one, which is these people are not immune to public opinion. I mean, what we've seen is the court reacting very defensively. Um, in trying to defend its legitimacy and integrity against uh, these public attacks. And so they're obviously of concern to the court. Now, whether that concern will actually uh, manifest itself in somewhat um, more middle-of-the-road decisions as opposed to the exceptionally conservative kind of reactionary decisions that we've been seeing, that remains to be seen. I mean, today the court just heard this uh, argument in Merrill v. Milligan, um, that's about the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which has been largely eviscerated um, by this conservative court. And at least in the oral argument, it seemed like some of the conservative uh, justices were maybe a little bit more sympathetic to defending the Voting Rights Act. Again, very hard to kind of read the tea leaves of an oral argument. But uh, it was it was interesting to see the, the questions that, let's say, Amy, Amy Coney Barrett was asking, because they did seem to be a little bit more sympathetic to the Voting Rights Act. Well, the arguments there today about the Alabama Congressional Redistricting Plan, you know, which is absolutely outrageous. The, there's more than a quarter of the state's population are African-American, but they only have one in seven of the congressional districts. So there's a flagrant example of racial gerrymandering. And already... In January, a three-judge federal court panel ruled unanimously that Alabama should create two congressional districts with a majority black population as opposed to the one. And they were on that panel, there were two judges that were Trump appointees and one a Clinton appointees. But then the state of Alabama appealed to the Supreme Court, and then they voted five to four, blocking the lower court ruling. And that resulted in Apparently, that decision was too, even too much for Chief Justice John Roberts, who we know has been against the Voting Rights Act, but he joined with the Liberals. So that's why this particular case is before the court, is it not? So if they've already tipped their hand, the Conservative Five majority, that's not very promising for ending racial gerrymandering. Right. It's, 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 it's not very promising. It's, and you're absolutely right. And uh, so, you know, and it, and it can be that uh, simply in the oral argument, there was they were trying to kind of engage in the simulacrum of uh, some sympathy to supporting the Voting Rights Act, when, in fact, the kind of the procedural profile of the case that has led it coming back to the Supreme Court suggests that it's, it is already a done deal. But 
we could be surprised, unlikely to be so, though we could be. It, it might also be the case that the court is, you know, it knows that it's going to be handing down some very controversial decisions. We know, for example, I think it's very safe money to say that race conscious um, race conscious admissions policies in higher education are history. Uh, it's safe to say that the court is going to strike that down now as unconstitutional. So maybe one of the things that the court is trying to do is being at least a little tactically savvy in uh, trying to uh, avoid um, just this storm of, of discontent with the opinions that they're, they're handing down. Right, but they have taken up the North Carolina independent state legislature theory, which is really absolutely the kiss of death for American democracy. That's the scariest one, isn't it? At least in absolutely. my mind. This case of Moore v. Harper, absolutely. So that, that's the case where the, um, the, um, it involves this kind of so-called independent state legislature theory. And it was previously a really a fringe notion, Ian. And the idea is that the Constitution gives uh, state legislators complete control um, over their elections and completely free from the oversight of state courts and regardless even of any uh, contrary provisions in state constitutions. And that would be a really dangerous decision. I mean, basically, uh, it could empower legislators spouting the big lie in swing states to determine the outcome of a presidential election. Now, again, we don't know if there are five votes for that. We do know that they decide to hear the case, which means in order to hear a case, the court has to have four votes in order to uh, decide to hear a case. So presumably there are four votes that are sympathetic with that theory. Whether there are five, not entirely clear yet. We can only hope that there aren't. So just in the last couple of minutes then, it's pretty clear that the Supreme Court is concerned about the public's perception. And you've got defensive comments from Chief Justice uh, Roberts and when Elena Kagan criticized them for, you know, looking around to find hot button issues and ruling in ideological ways, that also prompted Alito to complain that questioning the court's integrity was crossing a, a line. You suggested that maybe they're, they're tempering their right wing ideology a little bit uh, in their questioning today on the Alabama case. But in general, in general, do you think that in other words, would it help to Biden to pile on or would it help to, for more people to pile on? Uh, because they are far to the right of where the center-left, center-right, you know, heart of middle of American politics are. Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt that this is basically the most uh, conservative court that we've had since, let's say, the early days of the New Deal. You have to go back to the early 1930s to find a court that is similarly conservative. And the other thing that, as you rightly point out, they are far more conservative than is the country as a whole. So um, when we say the country is divided on these issues, that's not entirely accurate. Uh, it's usually the, it's about a 60-40 uh, split, um, let's say, for example, supporting abortion rights. Um, so, you know, whether the court is prepared to maybe, again, tactically avoid looking so transparently reactionary and partisan for the purpose then of generating or at least making more palatable some of their other more important decisions, it's possible. I don't know. I think another thing that we really need to kind of recall is I think one of the reasons that there has been this erosion of legitimacy goes beyond simply the decisions that the court has made. I think it goes to the composition of the court itself. 
that if you think about Neil Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett, one of the two of them should not be on the court. That is, if you accept the idea that the people get to choose who the next uh, Supreme Court justice is, then Amy Coney Barrett should not be on the court. And if you accept the proposition that uh, the next president, that the sitting president should get to choose who's on the Supreme Court, even in election year, then Neil Gorsuch should not be on the court. So part of it has to do with the fact that the very composition of the court today smacks of illegitimacy. Well, Lawrence Douglas, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks as ever, Ian. And again, I'll be speaking with Lawrence Douglas, who's a James Grossville Chair in Law, Jurisprudence and Social Thought at Amherst College, and a contributing opinion writer to The Guardian. And his latest book is Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America The quiet voice singing something to me Oh